Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Peter Briffitt, CEO and co-founder of Wagestream, a financial well-being platform that's raised $370 million in funding. Peter, thanks for chatting with me today. Hey, hi, Brett. Your accent is so pleasant to hear. I, I always love speaking with <laughs> accents like this. <laughs> well, while the rest of the uh, world is enjoying summer, I'm in rainy England. But like I just said, once Wimbledon finishes, the sun comes out. So it's a good place to be for the next few weeks. And that is nice. I love it. All right, Peter. So to kick off, let's just start with a little bit about your background. So can you tell us a bit more about your background and your journey that led to launching Wagestream? Yeah, I mean, it's I'm old, so this is I could go on for a long time, but I've definitely been lucky enough to sort of grow, manage and scale several sort of high growth technology businesses. I mean, I've built companies and been part of companies that have become you know, multi-million dollar global brands and sort of engage millions of consumers. But also with any entrepreneur, it would be remiss of me not to say I've had a huge amount of failures as well. I did actually try once to sell the whole global. I tried to corner the global champagne market in China by selling, by trying to export all the champagne from France to China. That was a miserable, unmitigated disaster of failure. So I've seen both ends really, but anything you like, I've sold a company to Microsoft and, and joined them for a while. I've sold a company to Thomson Reuters. I was part of Living Social in the UK that grew to 100 million ARR. And, you know, five years ago, I founded Wagestream in the UK, but now obviously operating UK, US and Europe. And is there a pattern across these different businesses? Like, is there a common theme or does it change? Yeah, I'm, I'm stu- stupidity to keep doing it again. I think <laughs> it's the pattern. No, I, I just get, like I said, I've sold some companies. I've joined large corporates. I know where I belong. And those are in fast growth technology companies. I stumbled into technology in the sort of mid 90s, it was my first job. They were just paying more than anyone else. And it was a company called US Robotics, which if you cast your mind back to those modems, it was in the 90s where, you know, if you sold anything attached to a computer, you had to be pretty stupid not to make money, right? Everyone was buying computers, you just had to buy stuff. So, you know, modems were making a fortune. So I just got the bug, I think, after joining a company and, and it was just scaling so quickly. And it was once you've done that, once it's hard to look at anything else with the same level of excitement. So I think, yeah, I've always been part of businesses. Some of I, I've owned, some I've tried to scale. So it's been a mixed bag, really. But uh, that's what I enjoy doing. And I think the older you get, the more you realize you need to enjoy your time on this earth. So that's what I love. Where did this passion for entrepreneurship come from? Was 15 year old Peter you know, trying to do businesses and, and startups and ideas? Or like, where did that come from for you? I think ultimately it's about being in charge of your own destiny. I think. At some point, you think, you know what, you spend enough time with other people or people say, I could do this or I could probably do this on my own. I mean, you know, when I was at university, there was an exchange program. So I was in the UK and you could go and work in the US and a US student could come and work in the UK. And I ended up doing selling books door to door in the US for summer. Now, I could have chosen a myriad of other jobs would have been far better. But um, I was on a zero, you know, 100% commission selling books door to door just because I thought I'd be able to do that. It was actually the hardest job I've ever had. It was horrible. It's like, I think it was in a cult or something. It's like working 80 hours a week, like running door to door around Massachusetts and Indiana and stuff. And But that I just I guess I just like that thrill really of, of sort of sales and marketing and being in charge of 
in terms of your destiny. It's, um, I guess I've always worked reasonably hard. So yeah, who knows, right? Who knows why it all comes about? But the, the natural theme is, yeah, owning something, being part of something, making a difference. I think those things are important. Do you have a specific superpower? Like, is there any skill that you think you're just very, very good at? That's, I, think, yeah. I think persistence. I'm very impatient. I don't think that's a superpower. I think that's a, that's not a virtue you probably want. But I think persistence and it's something I'd call, it's like cognitive dissonance or founder dislike. You just have to believe in what you're doing, even though everyone says it's wrong or you're an idiot or it's not going to work. And at some point, they're probably right because I've been in enough businesses where that's been a bad thing because I've continued with something that I should have stopped. But I think in the early days of a startup, it's very tough. It's very hard, especially if you're doing B2B, especially if you're doing B2B enterprise, because it's very hard to, you know, as a small standalone company to sell into a large company, there's a huge amount of risk for that company to take you on or your technology on. So I think you've got to just be persistent and you've got to believe in yourself. And to the point where sometimes when when no one else does, you have to, I think that's, I don't know if that's a skill or I got knocked on the head as a child, but I think that's, that's important. And what about inspiration? Are there any founders that have really inspired you throughout your journey? And are there just any founders that you really admire and have looked up to and learned from? Yeah, I mean, look at all the obvious ones, right? But I guess I always admire the people that have done, just built something from nothing and had a vision and dream and, and again, not changed course. I mean, if you, so we're based in DC in the US. So if anyone's based in DC and gone to see the Wright Brothers or the Wright Brothers Museum, take the Wright Brothers as if you want a good startup journey, and look at what they did to obviously achieve the first man flights. It's absolutely incredible. It's not like they turned up at Kitty Hawk and built a plane and it worked. It was going back year after year after year and then having to spend the off time in their bicycle shop trying to figure stuff out and reiterating and building until they came up with something that actually <laughs> vaguely flew. But it's like normal people just wouldn't go through that. And I think that's what I mean about sort of found a dissonance no, they just continue to persevere with something because they had a dream to build a flying machine and no one was going to tell them it was not going to work even though no one had ever done it before no one had ever achieved it before but it was a multi-year product iteration journey i think anyone building something from scratch can take some lessons for that everyone thinks entrepreneurs only turned up in the last 20 years but they've been around for a long long time there's human examples of them all through the centuries where people just build something and made magic. I think those guys are awesome. You know, one thing that I always think about is, you know, sometimes advice is conflicting. You you talk about, you know, persistence and, and perseverance and the importance there. And then on the other hand, you hear people talk about, you know, you got to know when to quit. You got to know when to pivot. So when you were doing your endeavors in China and, and trying to you know, build a champagne empire there, <laughs> did you know when it was time to, you know, pursue a different opportunity and leave that behind? And yeah, you know, what did you have to have moments where you, you know, were persevering through a lot of pain or what was that experience like for you? Yeah, well, I mean, I think when I first went out to China, I'd had a lot of early success. They were trying to buy champagne and I went out there thinking, well, I can own this market. And then I realized that every single champagne house had already established a flag on Chinese soil and was setting up their own distribution. And it's like, I just realized, I said, oh, these guys are too big. I mean, I had so many free samples of champagne that probably fueled my they work ethic, but it was just the realization, I think, that this, I just can't, you know, this isn't going to work. Um, what was true that, you know, you can't grow grapes in China, so they can't produce wine and or champagne. And I thought, you know, in a world where I was selling hardware and they were replicating everything, I thought champagne's the one thing they couldn't replicate. Well, that was correct, but it was also true that every champagne house in the world had realized that five years before me. So yeah, it still took me a while though. I still went on with that one too long. I should have realized that early on. 
But uh, yes, that is a, a bug or a feature. I don't know, but persistence is required, but not to the point where you're doing something silly. And what about books that have really inspired you? And the way we like to frame this, and we stole this from an author named Ryan Holiday, but he calls them quake books. So a quake book is a book that like rocks you to your core. It really influences how you think about the world and how you approach life. Do any quake books come to mind for you? Well, it's probably cliche, but I have deployed the strategies in Crossing the Chasm. Um, It's a book by Jeffrey Moore. For me, it's just a foundation book of anyone building or launching a new technology and trying to establish an early market. I've taken the lessons from there and I have used them multiple times in multiple different companies. And I just think if you are starting a company, I think it's absolutely critical from a marketing, product development, sales, motion, that you understand that book and what it stands for and and the strategies deployed because you can save a lot of time if you take some of those learnings. Uh, Just an example, I had a visual database company, this was around 2006, that I was running. It'd been founded by a guy from the BBC that used a lot of media files and it was, you know, using this visual database that he'd personally built to manage, you know, all sorts of different media assets. But we raised a focus on the professional photography market, uh, put all our marketing efforts into professional photography, started using them to evangelize us and built a real niche in that market. And that's what and Microsoft, when they wanted a tool for professional photographers, they bought us as a result. And I think, you know, owning a niche, understanding market adoption dynamics, understanding catching a beachhead and owning a beachhead, I think those things are critical in an early market. And I believe the lessons of that book, that the reason so many businesses fail because they don't deploy some of those strategies. So I'd recommend that highly to anyone starting a company. To me, one of the most fascinating parts of that book is just the the fact of when it was written. Uh, I think it was written in what, like the late 80s or maybe like early 90s. I remember a few years ago, someone recommended that book to me and I was like, what am I going to get out of this book that was written in the uh, in the eighties? Like it's like right, yeah. my and I read it. I'm like, holy shit! It's it's all the same stuff. You know, correct. Yeah. It's all the same principles at the end of the day, which I just thought was super fascinating. And yeah, it's such a great read. Yeah, history shows us all the time. You just got to look back in the past. Most people have done these things before. There's lessons there for everyone. So totally. Let's switch gears here and let's dive into wage stream. So just at a very high level, can you tell us a bit more about what the company does? Yeah, I mean, look, our mission is clear. We want to provide fair financial services to frontline workers. So think, you know, shift workers, lower income workers. And the way that we do that is to allow the employer, their employer to be the bank for them. Uh, We think that banks don't serve lower income workers very well. They see them as a risk. Whereas now with, you know, financial technology, we can allow the employer to provide financial services to their workforce that are much fairer, that are subsidized by the employer and provide much better financial well-being to that workforce. So that's what we do. And the, the end goal for us is to change, you know, the way lower income workers receive financial services. And we're doing that by making the employer the bank. Yeah, that's our mission. And then how does that work for a worker? Let's say if they you know, change employers throughout the course of their career, in theory there, does every one of their, every time they switch, then I'm guessing a, their different employer becomes the bank? Yeah, I mean, look, we work directly with employers. So we contract with a business. And by doing so, we allow them to provide a range of financial well-being services built around pay that are benefits to those employees. So think things like total visibility of earnings in real time, flexible pay, you know, financial coaching, you know, really strong 10% interest rates, benefits, hubs, all these types of things that allow a uh, worker to have better financial futures. But yeah, in our model, 
we're B2B to see if you like, we have to, you know, that business has to contract with us for us to be able to offer our services. So if you work at Burger King, for instance, which is Wadestream, you'll get access to all these financial tools. But if you go to somewhere else that doesn't have Wadestream, then yeah, that means those services aren't available. From day one, was it always B2B or was it ever B2C or have you ever considered going... It was 100% B2B and it was in the early and kind of like we are razor focused on large enterprise. And if there's something I've learned about like B2B is tough enough because you obviously, you know, you've got to get make a business to make a decision, not an individual, which is very, very different than consumer uh, B2C. And even make it even tougher for yourself by making a, a large organization make a decision, which is really difficult. So yeah, it was that was definitely an early challenge, but we've always been B2B and the reason is we go in and contract with a business. We have to integrate with their workforce management system so we can see in real time everyone, you know, how many shifts people have, the monetary value of those shifts. We also need to link to payroll because, you know, we're deducting money from pay if it's taken between pay cycles. So the B2B model for us, it, there was no other, you know, that was the option we had. So yeah, but obviously our services are given to the employee and they benefit the employee. And that's why it's always a bit of a challenge for us because we're selling you know, a benefit into the business where, you know, the senior manager that buys it may not have the same financial issues as their workforce who typically would be, you know, less paid shift workers. When I was looking at your LinkedIn, I saw you listed out three missions there. So mission one, the complete eradication of payday loans. Mission two, every frontline worker has 250 pounds in savings. And mission three, end overdraft fees forever. So looking at those missions, especially one and three, I'm guessing there's some people who don't like this, right? The payday loan companies probably yeah. like the they're making and overdraft fees. I can't remember the exact numbers, but overdraft fees are in the billions and billions of dollars. In the, the billions from banks. Yeah. I mean, no one likes payday lenders, right? They're predatory. The interest rates and the repayments are horrific. We need to end that. And part of the reason that people turn to those payday lenders is because they have liquidity issues between pay cycles, right? The whole purpose of a payday lender was, hey, have some money before payday because you may have run out of money. And that's why flexible pay or being having the ability to choose when you get paid is so critical to a lot of lower income workers. It means they can just take some of their wages and use that to spend on you know essential items and they don't have to turn to a payday lender. So I think in terms of our missions, we've done a good job with our audience. We've got 3 million plus employees now on Waystream. And we look through open banking, we see the data. So we know they're no longer reliant on payday loans. And if you can get people out of those debt cycles, then the next stage is to try and get them saving more money. So providing really strong savings programs for employees is really important. And then you sort of take them on that financial journey of building up their credit scores after that. So they've got access to fairer financial products and you know, they ultimately be able to invest or, or mortgages and things like that, which a lot of people I'm sure listening to this program have no issue getting a mortgage or no issue getting a credit card. But it may surprise people like 25, 30% of any population in the US or UK has no access to any of these types of what we consider normal financial services because their credit scores are so low that they're not able to access those. So it's actually a real issue for them to pull themselves out of that sort of debt cycle or that lower income into another world where they're actually getting fairer financial tools. Because one of the you know dichotomies of life is the fact that an oligarch is going to get access to much better interest rates, much better financial educational tools, much better financial advice than a low-income worker who basically gets screwed on everything from, you know, interest rates to overdraft fees to no financial education. And that's why we think we really changed the nation of providing those services because the bank will always see a low-income worker as a risk where 
an employer sees their worker as their greatest asset and they will pay for those services to be you know, fair and subsidized so that their workers get a better deal. Can you take us back to 2018 when the company was founded? How did you uncover this problem and, and what was it about this problem that made you your co-founder? And as I understand it, you have charities who are also co-founders. What was it about this idea that made you all come together to say, yep, that's it. Let's dedicate ourselves to solving this problem. So I didn't know Portman, my co-founder, when we started Waystream. I mean, obviously knew when we started Waystream, but when we were talking about it, I, I'd never met Portman before. So we had a mutual friend in the US. He's a guy called Greg, and he had known me when I worked at Living Social. And Living Social was a big DC company. He also knew Portman. So, you know, he, he was the connection. And he sent us an article in the Wall Street Journal about Walmart, which is the biggest shift working, you know, employer on earth. And about how they were trying to figure out if flexible pay would drive certain behaviors with their staff, like better retention rates, would their staff do more hours work if they could get paid immediately. And we just thought this was the best idea we'd ever heard of. And, you know, Greg put both me and Portman together. We started talking about it. And I was based in London. Portman was actually based in California, Sonoma, so just outside where you are. And we just realized, you know, in the UK, in this feudal society we live in, we get paid monthly. We don't get paid bi-weekly like most people do in the US. We get paid on a monthly basis. And this puts a lot of low-income workers under huge pressure during that pay cycle. And we just thought, this is an awesome concept with you know, all HR payroll systems going into the cloud. We could connect to these systems and provide a solution that would be massively impactful on the financial lives of, of workers. And of course, as good entrepreneurs, we decided everyone would buy this immediately and it would be easy and there'd be a whole queue of people outside the, the office, the, the, as soon as we launched the product, you know, and have to reinforce the doors, there'd be so many people wanting to sign contracts, but alas, no queue appeared. And that's where I guess our problems began. You'd be the first entrepreneur and founder to ever have that happen, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Where's the queue? Wait, well, this is the best idea. Oh, what? Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. What I always joke about with brands is, you know, as a founder, you always know that it's going to take twice as long and cost twice as much. And even now I factor that in and somehow it still takes twice as long. Yes, yeah, twice as long, twice as much, yeah. We've been going for five years. We're two and a half years behind. That's always the way. Yeah. Now, I also saw that you're the world's fastest growing social impact company. What do you attribute to that success and that growth? Yeah, I mean, look, I think it's massive for us. It's massive for us as a business. It's in our DNA. It's in our culture. When we sort of decided to found Wagestream, one of the first investors that came on board was an Ascension Ventures in the UK, and their LPs are large social impact charities. So think Joseph Roundtree, you know, the chocolate for Barrow Cadbury's so of Cadbury's, you'll, you'll probably know them, Big Society Capital. These were in the UK, big Victorian chocolate manufacturers that actually had this real, you know, mantra to look after their staff. They built towns from school education systems and things like that. So the fund was put together to try and reduce the poverty premium for frontline workers. And the poverty premium is the more that a lower income worker has to spend on you know, financial services, on insurance products, on utility bills, they're actually spending more than middle income earners because they get charged more for these services, which is totally unfair. So the fund was put together to, you know, fund businesses that were, were trying to reduce the poverty premium in our world. Obviously, we were trying to kill off payday loans and kill off overdraft fees and, and provide people with much more flexibility. So they funded us and they also, part of that funding was that we put a social charter in our articles. So those are the foundation documents behind the company that everything we do has to, you know, reduce the poverty premium for frontline workers. And that cannot be changed as part of our company setup. Every investor that comes on since then, and we're lucky enough to have some great investors have had to agree to that social charter. And it's something that people here are very, 
you know, it's very important to a lot of the people that work at Wagestream and it's important to our clients. And it's also important as well, I think, for us to be seen as a company that's always going to do right by a workforce, right? Because employers are very protective over their workers and rightly so. And they should know that, you know, we're always going to do, you know, provide fair products to them. And because it's very easy, I think, in finance to take a road, like it's always easy to charge more interest or charge more fees or go down another road. So I think this keeps us honest and it keeps us in line with what we're trying to do as a business. I also saw that you were named to Forbes for the 80 under 80. So oh, I made that up. I made that up because I'm too old. Yeah, and I'm too old. Well, so yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I, thought that was I thought that amused me and some of my friends for a while. I'm sure they had to take it down. But yeah, 80 under 80, if they ever do it, I'm your man. So my question there is, you know, what role does humor play in your leadership style? Because, you know, just from this conversation and seeing funny things like the Forbes 80 under 80, you don't seem to take life too seriously. And what I've found, you know, a lot of times when I speak with founders who have companies that are, you know, at this scale and of this size, they're very serious and they, they seem to be you know, very stressed out and they, they just are, yeah, very serious people. So what role does humor play in you, know, how you approach company building and leadership in general? I think life has to be fun, right? I mean, if we're asking people to come and work at Wagestream and it's hard work, what we do, and it, we're trying to solve big problems. And it's some of that's got to be, I mean, there's going to be stresses. It's going to be hardships. It's also got to be a fun journey and people should look back and go, look, that was hard, but uh, my God, did we change, you know, if our legacy is we change how, you know, lower income workers get financial services and we give them better financial health. I mean, that's a huge legacy. So I think that's not easy though. And that's still, we're only beginning in the journey. So I think... Uh, humor should play a big part in it, you know, and, and having a company where people can laugh, people spend time with each other. There's lots of social events and we, we try and make sure, you know, people it's good fun as well as hard work. I think those two things have to come in tandem. I don't think you can, it can all be hard work all the time and no fun. I think that's uh, no good for anyone. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. When I search your name, when I search Wagestream, you know, what I find is a lot of success. So it's a lot of you know, positive news, big funding rounds, lots of traction, big customers. Are there any untold stories of you know, maybe near-death experiences or just extremely painful moments that you went through in those early days? Because we'd like to hear these and you know, how I view it is those are the stories that typically don't get told. You only hear about the good stuff. Tell us about the bad stuff. Yeah, no, I mean, look, I could, there's a list of those. I mean, I think the real issue in the early days, like I said, there was no queue of CEOs outside the door waiting to sign wage stream contracts. And so we had to go out and obviously just try and knock down doors and, you know, talk to big businesses. And it was really tough because we just, A, we couldn't get the door half the time. The other time, you know, what is this? It's money on an app. It's, it's what sort of wizardry is this? You know, so it's just getting people to understand the concept of what we're trying to do was tough. And I guess I hadn't really understood that as a sort of two-man band at the time, trying to and we're going to interact with your pay we're going to interact with all your systems we're going to integrate with those systems i mean we present a real risk to a buyer and i also had as entrepreneurs you're always high risk so you only you assume everyone else is high risk but the reality is most people are much lower risk and if you work in a corporate you're probably you know the other side of the spectrum for risk i mean if you're high risk you'd be working a startup like us so trying to understand people's motivations as a large enterprise buyer they're probably more concerned in their career 
are you a risk to my career? If I take your technology on, will this kill my career? I mean, these things are important. So we've had to do a lot of work around that. And I think just, you know, in the early days, just we really struggled to get a client. And one thing we did bizarrely, which worked, was there was a big payday loan company in the UK called Wonga. And everyone hated Wonga, right? The press hated them. The government hated them. Everyone hated them. And just by chance, and we'd set up our store to like kill off payday loan. So just by chance, Wonga went into bankruptcy because the regulator really closed them down. But we tried to take the credit for that. And we did a mock funeral procession across Millennium Bridge, which is one of the walk bridge across to the Thames. And we had this big funeral procession. We had a coffin called Wonga. And we rang up some press and we said, hey, come and look at this. And there was we had a whole funeral procession. Most of them were actors because there were a few of us in the company at the time. And we, we would kind of present ourselves as slightly bigger. But that picture of us walking across Millennium Bridge with a Wonga coffin got in the front of all the major newspapers in the UK because it was just Wonga's demise and they, they sort of loved it. And as a result of that, we had a company called Rent-A-Kill, which is a large PLC in the UK. And the owner of that company saw that picture and he said, hey, he rang up his CFO and said, hey, we need this because, you know, he, this guy had been at Rent-A-Kill all the way from, you know, when he was doing pest control all the way up to being a CEO. And he remembered what it was like to not have any money. He said, this is exactly the product we want. And that from that Getting that first client is really important because suddenly you've got credibility. Suddenly you've got something you can case study and it just starts your traction. I think the hardest thing in B2B sales, especially B2B enterprise sales, is getting that first few customers. It's so hard because no one wants to be first. No one wants to take the first risk. What they're thinking in their heads when you come and present to them is, who else is doing this? Will I be fired if I buy this? So yeah, stuff. But that worked for us just by complete fluke and chance. But do a PR stunt. That's my advice. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a Richard Branson styled PR stunt there. I think yeah, was, there was no champagne or planes, but yeah, it was a similar thing. Is that something you continue to do today? Or are, you, are you still doing a lot of PR stunts? I think we do a lot. We do a lot of customer evangelism. So there's nothing more powerful than one of our clients saying they love Wagestream or they've put Wagestream in or Wagestream's benefiting their staff. It's far better than me trying to tell people Wagestream's great. I'm, I'm naturally going to do that. I've always done that. It's so much more powerful if you can get customers to evangelize what you do and your your business. I mean, you know, we learned that a hospital in the UK and the NHS, they don't really care what Burger King or McDonald's is doing. They really care what the hospital next door is doing. And, you know, whereas Burger King may not care what, you know, hospitals say, they really care what McDonald's or another fast food. So that you've just got to, and that's part of that sort of getting into those markets, those sectors, but also really customer evangelism, I think is massive. And I don't know why more people don't use LinkedIn for that. It's a perfect, perfect social network where you can get customers to evangelize you and it engages other customers. I think it's like, we found it the one, you know, the biggest sales channel for us in terms of lead generation, I think, and brand awareness. And when you say customers, is this the brands themselves who are evangelizing for you or is it the... Yeah, I'm talking about our clients is, is a Burger King is, you know, that's our client. So it's the clients themselves saying they've launched Waystream. This has been really beneficial to their staff. And just, you know, we do a lot of that and it's become self-perpetuating. A lot of people that launch Waystream will go on LinkedIn and say they've launched Waystream. Those things are, it's been really, really helpful to us. And is there any bottoms up? evangelism there you know, where the end user is you know, celebrating how you know, this has made their life better and, and improved their life? Yeah, 100%. So we'll do a lot more of that now. You've got bottoms up from you know employees. We, we use reviews, we use case studies, we use videos to do all that. That's really important. But I think the next stage, like you rightly said at the beginning, 
you know, one of our, on our product roadmap for the end of this year is a product that, you know, you can take with you when you leave your employer. So some of the features of waste streams still exist to try and, you know, help you financially as you find another employer. But having a bottoms up as well as a top down, I think is really important. And, you know, we struggle in the UK to get into boardrooms and we did. So we've used outside of PR stunts and everything else. I think you really have to show business value to your buyer because they have to sell it internally and you have to make sure that you've given them the right tools to do that. And also in the UK, it's weird, like, you know, CEOs, board members, you know, we've employed Olympiads, ex-Olympiads to get us into boardrooms. We've employed rugby stars, anyone that can help us start a conversation. So yeah, there's, you've got to have a top down and a bottoms up approach, I think. And if you've got those two working, that's the Slack model, right? It's the one everyone wants and the most successful because you've got that flywheel. Have you ever had a PR stunt either not work or backfire? <laughs> not yet. I've got loads of more ideas that now I've got a proper marketing team. They're like, okay, no, but yeah, we'll see. Not yet, but I've got some more ideas. So we'll, <laughs> I'm sure definitely one of them will go wrong. That's for sure. <laughs> what do you think you've gotten right? Just from, you know, from a, a company building perspective, obviously things are going well. It sounds like you're having a lot of traction. What do you think you've gotten right? I think we got the mission right. I think that resonates with people. It resonates for us. And we're never going to detract from that. And I think having, you don't know how you're going to get there all the time, but the fact we've got a very, very clear mission of what we're trying to do and provide fair financial services to frontline workers, I think that's that's really powerful. Because it keeps everyone moving towards that, even when you know the path there is is hard and you have to change course. So I think having that mission is right. I think we understood early on as well, we needed to have a full suite of financial tools, not just flexible pay, but savings, financial coaching, you know, visibility of earnings. I think these things are really important for the buyer so they can buy the whole suite. So I think we built that pretty quickly. And I think that helped us get some early traction because flexible pay, can't, people, oh, is it dangerous? Can it be misused? Whereas things like savings are universally loved by employers. If they can get their staff saving at a higher rate of interest than they're able to get from a bank. It's just a great story and a great benefit. So I think having a full suite was really important as well. And what stage in the, the company's life cycle did you make the jump into the US market? And what did you learn from that experience of moving into the US market? Yeah, I mean, I think initially, obviously, if you saw our first pitch deck to investors, it's like, we can be global. We can be in any country in a week. You tell us which one. That was just not true. It was myself and Portman's first fintech. We actually genuinely believe we could do this anywhere. But then you realize that, you know, another country is, you know, is a huge lift. And, you know, we launched Netherlands, we launched Ireland, and, you know, these things we had to come back from. And the reason is for us, we're using bank rails, we're using payments infrastructure, and those things are different in every country. They're hugely different. Banking in the US is completely different to the UK in terms of, you know, the infrastructure and our ability to be able to move money quickly. So you've just got to be really cognizant of those. The good thing is that, you know, the team is strong out there in, in the US now. And I think initially it was, it was tough just because we weren't showing enough domain knowledge. I think the UK's are, it's easy when you've got a really strong market in the UK, which is growing and growing 100% year on year, you assume that's going to happen everywhere, but you just have to put the effort in, in other countries and spend a lot of time with the people there to make sure, you know, that same level of domain knowledge is being transferred. It's very easy to think it is, but the reality is it often isn't. So yeah, you've got to be really be focused on that. I think. As I mentioned there in the intro, there's been 370 million raised so far. What have you learned about fundraising throughout the cycle? 
Yeah, I mean, fundraising, like anyone would tell you, it's hard. I think the main thing I'd say is have a plan. It's about planning and timing. Because if you can control the process, then you will get funded. If you lose control of the process, then it's a lot harder to call back to get what you want. And if you're in charge, it can happen quickly and effectively. If you're not in charge, you know, and it gets driven by others, it's always a challenge. So, you know, have a real clear plan. I think we've done that well in a few times, have very structured meetings. You know, we're always meeting investors, but when you go to market with a fundraise, you make it very clear to everyone that's happening. You're going to try and close it in this time of time. We're going to make all the time in the world for everyone to understand the deck and the the process and everything else. But I think trying to remain in control of it's really important. Of course, creating FOMO as part of that is another thing, if you can do that, but it's all about planning and executing and it's it won't always be in your control but as much as it can be i think then then you've got a chance and it's a lot tougher now but the same rules apply it's not it should never be a willy-nilly type of process or let's just test the market i think if you're going to go fundraising go properly and take the time to do it properly it's a much better way you've achieved what i think many or most tech founders if they're being honest um you know dream of achieving which is to build a company that is worth more than a billion dollars or to build a unicorn company What I always like to ask in these interviews is about the mindset and intention in the early days. So day one or day zero, as you were talking about this idea, was that the intention? Did you view this as a big multi-billion dollar opportunity? Or what was that mindset as you went into this? I think think my mindset's always been everything I've done is going to be multi-billion dollar opportunity. The reality is very few companies that I've run have ever achieved that. I think we tend not to, the older I've got, the less I think about the value of the company. Of course, if the company's successful, it's going to be worth a lot. And we do want that to be the case. But I think a lot more about, certainly in the early days, get traction, get customers, provide value to those customers and provide value in your product. And then it, you're just going to win. And thinking about outcomes or exits, it doesn't do you any favors in the early days. Get a product to market, make it work, provide value to people and get them to evangelize that value for you, and you will just get traction. And if you've got traction and growth, then all the world is your oyster in terms of valuations and and everything else. So I think spending less time thinking about values of the business, but more time thinking about making a difference and building something special, I think those things are are more important because value always follows growth and, and good execution. Let's just pretend you were starting the company again today from scratch. So if that was the case, what would be the number one piece of advice you'd give yourself? Oh, that's a good question. I think we definitely wouldn't have, we wouldn't pretend it to be global immediately. And we'd have tried to really hone in on a home market because we got distracted by trying to do too many things. So I think that's definitely one thing when we look back, you know, we shouldn't have tried to go global too quickly. I think that's correct. And I look back and think, well, we should have got more clients faster. But I think potentially the other lesson was leveraging partnerships. So we'll, we now partner with workforce management systems and we partner with payroll systems and we've got some great partners. And we've realized that those having a good partnership where you've already got a, you know, integration really does accelerate a sales cycle because you're taking out contract friction, you take out integration friction with the buyer. So I think those, those two things probably focus on making your home market work and and try and look for distribution partnerships. It's all about distribution. How can you get your products in the hands of your users fastest? Partnerships can play a massive part in that. 
final question, since I know we're almost up on time here. Let's zoom out three to five years from today. What's that big picture vision? What are you building? I think we'll have a must-have product for large enterprises that employ frontline workers. And it will be a product that not only ends your debt, it builds your savings program, it improves your credit, it's got credit builder score coming out, it allows you to invest, it allows you to get on the housing ladder. I think it'll be a fully fledged financial wellbeing solution built around pay that people, it will be a must-have product for frontline workers because it will be so much better, 10x better than products that they can get from banks. And I think what we call workplace finance, you know, is the ability of turning the employer into the bank for their employees. It is the most important financial institution in their lives because it pays the money everyone else is trying to take from them. I think we've achieved something massive. And I think we can do that in in the next five years. We're sort of, you know, on that journey now. We've got a large user base of three million plus employees. And I think we can you really start improving their financial lives. And I think that's going to be incredible for the company and everyone that works here if we can deliver that legacy. Is workplace finance the category that you're aiming to create then? Correct. Yeah. It's something that's only really been enabled with fintech. But yeah, that's what we're trying to do. We want the employer to be the bank for their workforce, not banks, which just aren't going to serve them correctly. Amazing. Peter, this has been such a fun conversation. I've really enjoyed it. I've learned a lot. I know the audience is going to as well. Before we wrap, if any founders listening in want to just follow along with your journey as you build and execute on this vision, where should they go? Thanks, Brett. Yeah, it's great to speak to you. I'll just go LinkedIn. Connect with me on LinkedIn. That's where we we spend a lot of time. And I can tell you how I got into Forbes 80 under 80. <laughs> awesome. Peter, thanks so much. Really enjoyed it. Take care. All right, mate. Cheers. Bye-bye. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode.